I don't know if you have brothers and sisters in your family. I don't know if you're the only child or not, but in my family, I was the firstborn. There's something about being the firstborn. You're just first. (laughs) And when you're the firstborn, you get the biggest room. You get to ride shotgun. You get to do all kinds of things in life. You get to go to high school first. You get your driver's license first. You're the, typically the first one to get married, although sometimes that gets messed up, and then there's like all kinds of anxiety on the inside. Oh, okay, but first, I was the firstborn. And when I was younger, I had control issues. Um, I still have some, but I've let go a lot of them, and then Jenny beat the rest out of me <laughs> over 20 years. My wife, Jenny, is also a firstborn. How cool is that, that two firstborns would like their eyes would meet and there would be that moment and the camera would do the thing where it kind of pans all the way around 360 degrees while they're kissing, you know, that magical moment. And, you know, we knew we were for each other and then we had to like meet out life because I was a firstborn and she was a firstborn. I slowly started discovering this as we were registering for wedding gifts. You want that kind of china? Well, how come we can't have like the forks with the swirls on them? Shut up. (laughs) What color the bedroom was going to be? I remember there was a lot of anxiety with Jenny and I over the color of our bedroom. You know, and the funny thing is now as a man of 42 years old, my bedroom is like pinkish and it's got flowers on the walls and I don't care. But back then it was like, you know, no. We are not going to have pink. We are gonna, it's going to be this. And where to put the couch? Who would have thought that you could have, you know, arguments over where to put the couch? But she wanted to put it one place. I wanted to put another. And so it was, you know, who's going to come out on top? And, and that's how firstborns kind of operate. Um, where to go out to eat? It's just, you know. And so that's why I was so looking forward to children. Children come along, and it's, yes, sir, daddy. Yes, ma'am, mommy. How can I help you today? Oh, you want me to, oh, we're going to. Yes, I would love that. Thank you. I am convinced that there are children like that somewhere in the world. (laughs) On the frozen tundra of Antarctica, I think that there are children who are passive and compliant, but... My family was not blessed with those children. (laughs) All three of them have opinions. All three of them want to lead. They want to determine what, where, when, and how. And so, you know, like we're going to do our family advent, and then it's we get in the car and we always go Christmas light driving. But there is this tension of what neighborhoods are we going to go to? Are we going to drive past Nan and Papa's house? Will we stay at Nan and Papa's house? And there is the tension. See, in my family, everybody wants to drive. I don't know what it's like in your family, but in mine, everybody wants to drive. Um, Isaiah likes to tell me about his favorite movie as a kid. One of his favorite movies was the Disney movie Navigator, or the, spa- the magical spaceship. And there's this phrase that the spaceship uses all the time, compliance. Wouldn't that be great if you could get that for people? (laughs) Compliance. (laughs) Okay? I'm the same way. The funny thing, I'm the same way with God. In one breath, I'm, oh, God, take my life. 
take my wife, take my family, take everything. Here it is. I lay it at your feet, take my job. And then in the next breath, I'm like, God, would you help me with? And I've got these plans and I want to do X. And how's come you're not? And why don't you? And you know, you really should because it's the God thing to do. After all, don't you see it? I see it. Do you see it? Come on, God, let's agree in prayer. Come on, let's go. And, and that's how it is. Too many people, too many people, I'm convinced, have reduced Christianity to the wrong thing. They've reduced it to believing the right things. You know, I believe in God. I believe in the virgin birth. Woo, you're in. Or, or knowing the right answers. Jesus. <laughs> really, it's the only answer you need. You learned it in children's ministry. You know, what do you do when they're suffering the world? Jesus, you know, what do you, the answer. Some people have reduced it to going to church or being active in church. But I don't think any of those things are the right reduction of Christianity. Really, Christianity could be reduced to two words. Follow me. I have a favorite movie, The Princess Bride. Some of you are familiar with it. Sadly, a lot of you in this movie or in this uh, church are so familiar with it, you could quote it line for line. (laughs) I will test you on that right now. In the opening scenes of the movie, you have... Wesley, you're introduced to Wesley, the poor farmhand who, you know, he's an indentured servant. And Buttercup, the owner, the owner, the slave driver, you know, who, by the way, you're told by the narrator, takes great pleasure in ordering Wesley around. Now, Buttercup, Buttercup tells Wesley what to do all the time in those opening scenes, but she never refers to him by name, does she? She calls him simply farm boy. Farm boy, polish my horse's saddle. I want to see myself in it. Farm boy, fetch some water. Farm boy, fetch me that pitcher. And what does Wesley say in response? As you wish. And there comes that moment where she realizes that Wesley's not just saying, as you wish. What is he really saying? I love you. Mm. It's the same way with God. I want to suggest to you this morning, it's the same way with God. When you say to God, as you wish, what God hears is, I love you. All right? And that's what I want to wade into today. Last week we talked about, you know, at Christmas time, really any time, Shouldn't you make room for God in your life? Shouldn't you open up your life to God? And, and we talked about how to do that, and we talked about the fact that God's not going to force himself on you. He's not going to force his way in. He's not going to knock down doors. It's up to you to invite him in. It's up to you to let him in, okay? But to, today is kind of a caveat on last week. Today the caveat is simply this. If you make room for God, he's going to want to drive, If you make room for God, he's going to want to lead. If you make room for God, he's going to look at you, and you know what he's going to say? Follow me. Open your Bibles to the Gospel of Matthew. The Gospel of Matthew, chapter 4. And that's that's what we're going to get in today. Um, Some people over the years have said, well, you know, I have Jesus as Savior, but I don't have him as Lord. And, 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 And some people would say, well you know, uh, that can come later or whatnot. I think it's, they're woven because it's who he is. He can't help but be king and Lord. That's just who Jesus is. Um, And so right here at the very beginning uh, of his ministry, you get an interchange that I think will help us this Christmas. Um, 
to put chapter 4, and we're going to start in verse 18, chapter 4, verse 18 into context, Jesus has completed about, I don't know, six months to a year of his public ministry. So he's been out and about doing his thing. You know, repent, the kingdom of God is at hand. <laughs> you know, you're healed. You know, miracles, all the stuff that you would expect from Jesus. And these four guys have been hanging out. Peter and Andrew and James and John. I think they were at the wedding uh, in Cana where Jesus turned the water into wine. But we see from this passage of Matthew that um, what the guys were doing is they were going out on weekends and evenings, and then they'd come back to the family business, and they'd be doing their fisherman thing. And then, oh, hey, Jesus is going to Capernaum. Let's go. You know, oh, I can't. i got to work. You know, I haven't gotten enough fish quota this week. I got, you know, so that's how they were doing it. And so here we have this interchange with Jesus and these men who have been kind of sort of hanging out with him. And that's verse 18, and this is what it says. One day, as Jesus was walking along the shore beside the Sea of Galilee, he saw two brothers, Simon, also called Peter, and Andrew, fishing with a net, for they were commercial fishermen. And the word used here is a cast net. Um, it's kind of a cool net. It's like this giant spider web circle that's about 20, 25 uh, meters in diameter. And at the ends, they would have lead weights, so you'd throw, it was meant for one guy. So this tells you that, that Peter and Andrew are kind of small-time fishermen, okay, because they just have a casting net. A one-guy thing, one guy throws the net into the water, the lead sinkers take over, and it kind of collapses in on itself and swallows a fish. <laughs> then you can pull it up and sell it and, and make some money. Uh, so uh, they're small-time fishermen, and Jesus uh, says this, verse 19, Jesus called out to them, Come, be my disciples, and I will show you how to fish for people. And they left their nets at once and went with him. This is a weird thing if you're familiar with how rabbis and disciples worked in the first century. The way it normally worked was this. As a disciple, as a potential disciple, you would pick the rabbi you wanted to follow. I mean, it kind of makes sense. It's how we do things today. So you'd, you'd pick, oh, I like this rabbi, I like that rabbi, and you'd choose. But here, Jesus is kind of throwing that out to the wind, and he's picking the people that he wants to have. Um, so that's weird in and of itself. And the, the kicker to me is it says, at once they left and went with him. And the next interchange is going to tell us more about how this works, and that's verses 20 and, uh, 21 and following. Verse 21, a little farther up the shore, he saw two other brothers, James and John, sitting in a boat with their father Zebedee, mending their nets. And he called them to come too. Okay, and the, the net they're mending, based on the Greek that we have there, is a trammel net. And a trammel net is not like the first kind of net. A trammel net is like... Okay, and so it would take two people in a boat over here, and two people in a boat over there. Okay, so now you need bigger boats because they have to be stable. You've got lots of people in the boat. This is a big fishing operation, all right? And so they're mending this big net that they would use to catch lots of fish, not just one fish, okay? It's a good family business. And Jesus says this. He called them to come. Verse 22, they immediately followed him, leaving boat, and their father behind. James and John leave the family business and dad and go immediately and follow Jesus. I mean, 
That's kind of weird, isn't it? But it's not when you consider what Jesus is doing. Um, there's this fourfold thing that's playing out in the text. And uh, I had never seen it before until this Christmas. And it was because of kid stuff being in Elijah. All right? So bear with me. All right? You've got Jesus comes on the scene, appearance. The guys are at work doing their thing. Jesus issues the call, and they respond. This happens with Peter and Andrew. It happens with James and John. In 1 Kings 19, Elijah calls Elisha, and it's the exact same sequence. Elijah comes on the scene, and he says to Elisha, boom, here's the deal, and he gives him the mantle of, of the prophet. Elijah is working in the field with his oxen. The mantle, the call is issued. Elijah, Elisha, though, asks a request. Can I kiss my dad and settle some things up? Sure, no problem. And then, boom, uh, he responds in obedience. Uh, Jesus' call is kind of a radical call. Uh, Jesus' call isn't like even the call of uh, Elijah in the sense that these guys don't ask for time off. They don't ask for exceptions. Um, and so the two things that I want you to get out of this is, one, it's radical. It's not like the rabbis of his day. He was expecting as you wish, right then and there. No, no ands, ifs, or buts, no qualifications, as you wish. And the second thing about it is that these are ordinary people. I mean, if you think about it, Peter and Andrew, James and John, one might have had a bigger business, but they're fishermen. They haven't been to seminary. They don't know their theological P's and Q's. They're not like the Pharisees. They're ordinary people. And Jesus called ordinary people. Um, and he asked them, uh, the, the Greek there is really simple, follow me. If you follow me, you're going to do something. You're going to fish for people. All right? So if you can reduce Christianity to those two words, follow me, I'd like to ask some questions this Christmas. All right? So here are my questions for the day today. Who's driving? In your car, who's driving? I know sometimes, like, you see the bumper stickers, God is my co-pilot. And you know the really smart-mouthed people, you know they always have the comeback for that, right? If God is your co-pilot, switch seats. <laughs> if God is your co if you're driving, if Jesus is in the car, but you're behind the wheel, something's wrong, <laughs> okay? If Jesus is in the car and you're behind the wheel, let him have the steering wheel because he wants to lead. He was born a king. He wants to be the guy behind the wheel. So switch spots with him. So that's my first question. Who's driving? Who's calling the shots. And I know that uh, sometimes when you think about surrender and obedience and following Jesus, if you're like me, you get some of the questions. Well, what if God takes away my job? What if God takes my family or my house? Or what if God, you know, does all these horrible things, you know, like missionaries? Oh, I don't want to be one of those, right? I mean, you know, you have those thoughts. Well, let's, let's unpack what obedience and surrender is. If Jesus is coming in and forcefully taking your job out of your cold, dead fingers, so to speak, <laughs> that you were clutching onto, is that really surrender? No, that, that's stripping away. That's taking. Taking and giving are different, aren't they? Surrender is about giving and offering. 
as you wish. It's not about having God pull it out of your cold, dead fingers, so to speak. Um, and so surrender really isn't about stripping away. And so when you and I have those worries and we're thinking, well, God's going to take this or that. No, God's not going to take anything. It's, it's going to be whether or not you give him something. And it, the dynamic is entirely different when you give something up. You know, I gave up a job to start Generations Community Church. It wasn't taken from me. Some of you have given up family. Uh, the Leonards, when they moved to Turkey, they gave up the proximity of family. But that was something they gave up. It wasn't something God pried out of their hands. Okay, so uh, surrender is not the same uh, as taking. Uh, the second misnomer about surrender is this. Sometimes in our culture, um, uh, the way our culture works is see cookie, want cookie, eat cookie. That's America in a nutshell, right? See cookie, want cookie, eat cookie. And America is really good about making sure there are cookies everywhere so that you see them so that you can want them, okay? Oh, look, it's another cookie. Wow, that one's really big, and it's chocolate, white chocolate macadamia. Oh! Okay, so that's the way America works. And, and a distorted response would be to say, I do not want a cookie. I do not want a cookie. Click, click, click. I do not want a cookie. I have never wanted a cookie. I am okay never to have a cookie the rest of my life. It's a cookie. I don't want a cookie. That's, that's distorted, okay? That's, that's not how surrender works. That's, that's not how it works. That's, that's kind of a weird aestheticism. Following Jesus isn't about denying the fact that you want something. Because that's like duplicity. That's like telling your spouse, oh no, I don't care where we go out to eat. And on the inside, I want Chinese. <laughs> okay? That's just being duplicitous or passive aggressive or whatever what. God doesn't want either. He doesn't want duplicity. He doesn't want passive aggressiveness. And he doesn't want you to kill off these desires that you have on the inside. Okay? So, so, Following Jesus in surrender is about the transformation of our desires. It's about approaching God with, you know what, I want a cookie, but not what I want, what do you want? And kind of setting it before him, so to speak. Here's the good news about surrender. Surrender actually produces energy. Did you know that? Could you use some energy this Christmas? Could you? I bet you could. You could use some energy this Christmas. When you wake up in the morning, God, here's my day. Please take it. <laughs> okay? You might be saying that about people. Please take them today to heaven to be with you forever. Okay? But when you're placing these things in surrender to Jesus, it actually becomes an energizing thing. When the first part of the day you're giving God the day, it actually produces energy for the day. When you, when you got a decision you're about to make, should I say yes to them or no? I'm not sure. I give you this decision. You're going to make a decision anyway, but you're, you're surrendering it to Jesus. Um, when you've got that relational conflict, maybe at Christmas it's your dad, and he's calling because your mom's all upset because you, you're not honoring the plans that you said you were going to honor, and you changed them, and she's crying at night. just want you to know your mom cried herself to sleep two nights, and he's using the parent guilt to get you to change your plans. Okay, and you feel the... Okay, and the relational conflict... Moment of surrender. God, I give you this relationship with my parents. I want to kill them right now, but I'm not going to. Here it is. I lay it at your feet, okay? Um, mo uh, when bad habits reappear, okay? Things that you saw, thought that you had licked, okay? And it's Christmas time, and you're at the party, and it's the fifth brownie. And you said to yourself, I am going to stop at two. I'm not going to have three. But then it happened, okay? God, I give this. I thought I had this licked. Here it is. I lay it at your feet. It's energy producing, 
when you surrender. It gives you energy. It really does. It's a spiritual thing. And, and here's where this hits the road, by the way. Um, it, it hits the road in, in day-to-day decisions that come at you all the time. Um, maybe it has to do with uh, sexuality. I'm going to wait. I'm going to wait. Or when you're married, it's only going to be with her. It's only going to be with him. I'm not going to find satisfaction somewhere else. Um, whether it's money, the taxman calls. Hey, oh, I've got really great news. Your refund, it's like twice as much. And instead of thinking of all of it as yours, thinking that you're going to give some of it away. Um, honesty in relationships about, you know, I'm really struggling with, or I'm, I'm, I feel like I fail at, and it's just being honest. Or, or maybe it's a confrontation. You feel that prodding of the Spirit, and the surrender part would be to speak up and say, you know, I'm really worried about you. You say you want to go here, but you've made this decision and this decision, and it's taking you in this other direction. And there's this inconsistency I see in your life. You don't want to have that conversation because you don't want them to be hacked off at you, but God's prodding you and prompting you. And the surrender moment is to, is to speak up, c- confronting someone you care about. So, um, again, if you could summarize and condense the Christian faith into two words, those two words would be, follow me. Follow me. And this Christmas, Jesus is saying to you and to me, follow me. And you know the best Christmas gift you could give God? Just be a Wesley, as you wish. And what God hears is, I love you. That's something that you could do this Christmas.